There's my secretary. Um, let's see. I'm going to give you the little backstory of where we've been uh, in the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 20, and we've come through the death on the cross. Obviously, his ministry is over on planet Earth, and yet in another sense, Christianity is just beginning in what we're going to read. Um, he died on the cross in chapter 19, buried by Nicodemus and um, Joseph of Arimathea in his tomb in a garden. And so by conquering, sorry, by dying on the cross, he conquered death for you and me and all who believe. He conquered sin and the devil's power. He lived the perfect life, and so that makes him the perfect sacrifice to take our place. He reversed the curse back from the Garden of Eden on all of mankind. Uh, just a beautiful act of love on his part. And he also made all the sacrifices of Judaism, all the shedding of blood of lambs and bulls and goats, unnecessary now. All those ceremonies, uh, they're obsolete because of his death on the sin, uh, death, death on the cross. So now we're going to watch as he is raised from the dead. And uh, the payment this has been said by many, the payment for sin was the death on the cross. The receipt is the resurrection. It shows that God accepted that payment. So we'll dive in in a second here. Um, chapter 20, let's just pick it up in verse, we're really going to start in verse two, but let's read verse one till we get the flavor of where we are. So he's in the tomb. They got him in just before sunset on Friday, before Sabbath, when you can't work. Now it's Sabbath has come and gone Saturday, and now it's early Sunday morning. Verse one of chapter 20 of the Gospel of John. Those of you that are here, so I know you're awake, say amen. amen. Good one. And those of you on Zoom, wave or say amen. Can't hear you, but I, I see you waving and thumbs up. Early on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, of course, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So, where are the apostles? We're going to learn later in this chapter. They're hiding in the upper room, doors locked, fearful of the Jews, because their leader got killed, capital punishment. They're worried they could be next. They're cowering in fear. These same guys are going to turn the world upside down for a four or five or six weeks after this, when they get the Holy Spirit. But for now, they're hiding. Where's Mary Magdalene? Okay, background on Mary Magdalene. We said last week, you see a lot of movies about Jesus, and Mary Magdalene is a prostitute. That's nowhere in the Bible. Nothing says that. Instead, Mary Magdalene had seven demons cast out of her by Jesus. She is eternally grateful to him. She's the only one there. And the good news is she's going to be the one that gets to see the risen Christ first. We'll talk about how amazing that is as we go. But it's early on the first day of the week. Um, it's still dark. So you're talking 5 a.m., 5.30. She can't wait. You ask, why is she there? Number one, she loves Jesus. Number two, she knows Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had to very hastily dress the body with the 75 pounds of spices, wrap it with um, pieces of linen, um, and the spices would harden and almost make a cocoon type 
look to the body of Jesus. Um, she intends to anoint the body with more spices. There are some other women that are going to join her there. She's the first one there. She loves Jesus. Um, I just love reading about Mary Magdalene. She goes to the tomb. She had watched the, the other two put him in the tomb. She goes there and verse one sees that the stone had been removed from the entrance. The idea is of a low entrance, three or four feet tall that you'd have to bend down to go into. We talked about the implications of that, the humility of how you come to Christ humbly. And they would roll a large round stone, almost like a giant quarter, if you will, but way bigger, very heavy into place over the hole, uh, the entrance so that nobody could get in there. Grave robbers were very common uh, in that part of the world. Also, you want to keep animals out from the tomb. So the stone's been removed from the entrance. This is a job for more than one man, usually. We also know from the other gospels, and John skips it, but it's a fact that Pilate had not only posted a guard there at the request of the Jews, who remembered he said he'd rise from the dead, post a guard, and there's two guards posted at least. Pilate has sealed the tomb with the seal of Rome, which is, you don't mess with that unless you want to end up like he did. Um, Matthew 28 tells us that the guards, an angel came, and there was an earthquake, and the guards shook with fear and became like dead men. They basically just passed out with fear. Mary sees the, the, the stone rolled away, and... So she's perplexed, verse two. So she doesn't look inside. She doesn't want to go inside the tomb. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. That's how John refers to himself, never by name. So she comes running to, the, running to two of the three leaders, Peter, James, and John are the three. She comes running all the way, verse two. And she says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So she's assuming grave robbers, or they, maybe the Romans, she doesn't know who, but they, plural, somebody moved the body. Why is this important? I want you to notice, no one, even the apostles, even Mary, who loves him more than anybody, Mary Magdalene, no one is expecting a resurrection. That's amazing to me, because the Old Testament predicts the resurrection, uh, Psalm 16 and other places, and Jesus said it over and over and over. He even said, after three days, I will rise again, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. That's two examples out of about seven or eight or nine. No one's expecting uh, a resurrection. In each resurrection appearance, we're going to see the various emotions people have because of their love for Jesus. For Mary, it's absolute grief. In a second, we'll see her again at the tomb, again, weeping uncontrollably. Um, for the apostles, it's fear. And for Thomas, doubting Thomas, it's doubt, right? So um, Mary becomes the first messenger of the resurrection, the first one to see him. She hasn't seen him yet. She's just seen the empty tomb. Um, I also want to quickly mention, we did this last week, the Jews for centuries at the command of God have worshiped on the Sabbath, Saturday. It starts at sundown Friday and goes to sundown Saturday. Sabbath, Sabbath, Sabbath. 
He rises on the first day of the week. He appears on the first day of the week, two weeks in a row. He doesn't appear on the Sabbath. Christians get it. And they ever since practiced worshiping um, Acts, I think it's 20 and um, um, yeah. And first Corinthians 16 says they're meeting on the first day of the week that they call it in the new Testament, the Lord's day, which would have been the Sabbath for the Jews. Pretty amazing that Jews change their day of, of, uh, worship. Okay. So she's assuming somebody took the body. She's really perplexed. She can't, uh, do what she wanted to do, which is re-anoint the body with more spices and what have you. Um, we already talked about that. Verse three. So they've got the news. We don't know. There, there's something going on. They've taken the body away. Verse three. So Peter and the other disciple, that's John, started for the tomb. Peter is older. John is younger. Uh, some scholars think Peter's in his 40s older guy married. He's got kids. We know from first Corinthians, John's a pretty young guy. Could even be at late teens, early twenties. John lives past AD 95. Keep in mind, this is right around 30 to 33 AD. He lives a long time after this. So she ran to them. Verse three, Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. How excited are they? They've just heard groundbreaking, life-changing news. They go running, sprinting. And John can't resist letting you know that he beat Peter. Both were running, verse 4, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Just like a man, you got to let him know. I beat him, right? I watch football. Maybe they missed the playoff games because they were running. Anyway, they run to the tomb. He, uh, that's John, bent over. This is John. John's very respectful. Bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Remember, he had to bend over because remember, low entrance, usually a rounded entrance. So he's got to bend over and look in. It's dark in there. There's no electricity. There's no candles burning. But he can see the strips of linen lying there but he respects that it's a grave. He doesn't go in. You know how impetuous and impulsive Peter is. Here comes Pete, huffing and puffing. Verse six, then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. Doesn't even hesitate. I'm going in. He saw the strips of linen lying there, Verse seven, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus's head, the cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Now, what you don't see in English that you see in the Greek is that the linens, the wrappings are still there exactly as they were. In other words, undisturbed. What do you mean? I mean, I don't mean to freak you out here and gross you out, but there's a dead body. Okay. And they would wrap the, the uh, anoint the body with spices, wrap the body with strips of linen, almost like bandages, tie the, the hands and the feet together. Okay. Put a separate cloth on the face, sometimes put a whole shroud underneath and above over, but that's how the body is. All the spices, as I said, would harden. Okay. So now you have to look at it like a detective. We were talking earlier about 
detective shows on TV, right? And mysteries and all that stuff. If grave, grave robbers stole the body, would they bother to take all the bandages off? If they did, how would the bandages look? It would be a mess in there, all unraveled. They'd be all over the place. The sense of the Greek is that the way it looked when he was in them is exactly the same, except they're hollow now. That they're undisturbed, that, the, that he has res resurrected straight through those bandages, okay? Um, and took the time to take the smaller cloth that was on his face and fold it up or roll it up neatly and place it off to the side. Grave robbers are out. Why would you undress the body and then carry a naked body out of there? It makes no sense. Would take a lot of time to do it. There's nothing to steal, right? Um, and no jewelry or any riches or any of that kind of stuff. Um, so they're so excited, they run and they heard the news. They're not indifferent. They can't be detached. They can't wait to find out if it's true. May I suggest to you, if you're watching or you're here, and you're not sure you believe in Jesus, you're hearing the same amazing news, run, don't walk, investigate the claims of Jesus and of the Bible and of God. This was all predicted. The lesson for you and I is, if God predicts something, and he has, there's a lot of prophecy in the Bible about the end times that has not happened yet, okay? And you may read it and go, that seems unlikely. Listen, this is unlikely that a man would be born as a baby in a manger, a virgin birth would be raised, the place of his birth isn't mentioned in the Bible, Bethlehem, that he'd be raised in Nazareth, he'd be a Galilean, he would do miracles, heal the sick, raise the dead, he would be betrayed by a close friend for 30 pieces of silver, and the silver would be thrown in the temple and used to buy a potter's field. His hands and his feet would be pierced. He'd be dying with criminals, but end up in a rich man's tomb. That's just a sampling of the 320-something uh, prophecies that Jesus fulfilled while he was on the earth. What's your point, Joe? Number one, this was predicted. Number two, What's predicted in the future, trust me, is going to go down just the way the Bible says it will. And we may be alive to see it and go, oh, wow, that's that. And rejoice. Instead of fearing and freaking out, it's one more reason to trust him. Amen. Okay. So there's, there's an amazing lesson coming, and I'm, I can't, I'm like a little kid. I can't wait to get to it. But I want to take you to John 11 quickly, though. John 11, verse 43 which we won't be here long. So flip back to John 11. This is the raising of Lazarus. Do you remember that? Lazarus has been in the grave four days. He's been buried very similarly to Jesus. I want you to see how it would look if Jesus didn't rise. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, verse 43, Lazarus, come out. I like King James, come forth with that British accent, right? The dead man, let's look at 44. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. You got the picture? I think he waddled out and could barely find his way out. And they had to 
let him go. Um, I think it says that right. I already turned the page. Hold on. Doesn't it say it right after? Jesus said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Not so for Jesus. Jesus resurrected straight through them. Just the look of the way the um, wrappings were, John, you're going to see, understands more than Peter. There's no way grave robbers. You can't. How do you get the body out of the cocoon, if you will? Um, okay, go back to of these verses again. He saw the strips of linen lying there, verse six, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus's head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the term first, he has to remind you again, by the way, I beat him in the race. Just want to mention it again in case you missed it. I'm surprised he didn't have a stop watching. It was 14 minutes, 11 seconds. My best time ever. Um, also went inside. He saw and believed. The word for saw is more than just visually I saw it. it, has the idea of saw with an understanding contemplatively like he, hmm, there's only one thing that could have happened here. He rose. They're not expecting a resurrection, but they've got one anyway. So, um, yeah, I wanted to show you Lazarus. Uh, okay. Um, verse eight. No, we already did that. So he saw, it says, and believed. You say, believed what? Fully understood everything? No, because the next verse explains they don't have a full orb picture yet because they don't have the Old Testament scriptures haven't tied it all together for them. But he believes Jesus has risen, I believe. The fact that Jesus rises speaks to the fact that when he says he's the son of God, he proved it. When he says he's the giver of life and has power over life and death, he proved it, right? It proves that God accepted the sacrifice as well. Notice that it's a large enough tomb to walk into, not walk, but you have to bend down, but to get into and walk around. If two grown men can be in there where a body was and what have you, we're about to have a visit from some angels in this chapter as well. Um, so um, this is nothing short of a miracle. It's the ultimate miracle. If Jesus had just paid for our sins, then that would have been great. And you and I, as believers, would have fellowship with God while we were alive, but the curse would still remain on us. And when we died, we'd be dead. His resurrection, folks, is your resurrection and my resurrection. The same thing is going to happen with you. You're not going to do it yourself. He's going to call your name like he did Lazarus. We'll get to Lazarus. We'll get to that in a second. Um, so the grave clothes are orderly. Um, he passes through the grave clothes, through the rocky tomb. You say, no, no, they rolled the, the angels rolled the stone away. That's how he got out. No, no. He came right through the stone tomb. How do you know that? Because he's about to come through a locked door in the upper room and freak out the apostles at first. Luke 24 says they think they're seeing a ghost. The door, the stone is rolled away, not for Jesus's benefit to get out. It's for everybody that believes to come in and look. I want you to notice that as well. John says he believed. He's writing in the first person. 
Um, he's not saying Peter didn't believe. He's just giving his own testimony. But you do get the feeling John understands more than Peter does what's going on. Um, okay, I want to take a brief detour before we get to the angel thing. Um, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So from John, let me put this over here. Go to 2 Corinthians 4. So take a right from John, past Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. What am I doing? I'm trying to show you that Jesus's resurrection is not just a nice story. It is your resurrection as well. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 14. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will do something else. What does it say? Will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. He's going to raise you. I want to hammer this point home. Um, now go one book to the left, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And oddly enough, we want verse 14. Again, unless my notes are wrong. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Um, okay, now take one book, go to the left, and go to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, chapter 5. I just want to hammer this point home. This is your future. Romans 6, verse 5. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. Talks about the old self being crucified. Um, let's see, do we want to go there yet? Yeah, we probably should go there now. Now go to the Old Testament. I want you to go to the little book of Daniel, which we studied last before we did John. Go to Daniel chapter 12. I want to show you this is not a New Testament Christian concept. This goes back to the Jewish scriptures, Daniel 12. If you can't find it, that's okay. Um, it's one of the minor prophets, you know, maybe 35 pages from Matthew, if that helps you. Daniel chapter 12. Um, okay, he talks about the end times, as a matter of fact. Look at verse one. At that time, Michael, the great prince, that's the archangel, who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of great distress. The word is tribulation, such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Okay, what's going to happen then? Watch this resurrection on a mass scale. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth, they're dead, will what? Awake. But notice, it's not all good news. Some to everlasting life, that's believers. Others to shame and everlasting contempt, that's unbelievers who will be judged. Um, now stay in chapter 12 of Daniel, and we're going to go to verse 13. Um, he says to Daniel, as for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. That's your story as well. Um, I don't want to take a lot of time with this, but I, I should probably do this. For a human being, okay, we are a trinity just like God is. Doesn't mean we're God. It just means we're, we have three components, 
okay? Body, soul, spirit. You with me? Soul and spirit are non-corporeal. It's a fancy word. All it means is they're not physical. You can't hold, look, I've got a soul here or a spirit over here. They're immaterial. You can't touch them or feel them, but they're real. Body, soul, spirit. With me so far? The body is physical and capable of dying. Okay. But the soul and the spirit are in there for a believer. The second you die, there's two verses that say this, you are instantly absent from the body present with the Lord soul and spirit rise out of the body. Let's say Joe keels over and dies and you try to revive me and it's just no use. And they come and haul my body away. Guess what? My soul and spirit long ago, when the ambulance gets here or the undertaker or whoever already in heaven with the Lord soul and spirit. But what about the body, Joe? They're going to put it in a casket, say some nice things that aren't true about me, close the lid, put it in the dirt somewhere. Actually, I know where we already bought the plot in Oakhurst. But one day, so I'll be with Christ in soul and spirit instantly, body in the grave. With me so far? This is true for every believer. When Christ returns, I'm getting to that scripture, something's going to happen. He's going to bring with him everybody that's already died that was a believer in soul and spirit coming back the cloud of witnesses coming back with him. Graves are going to open and you're going to go to where your grave is if you're dead at the time. And here comes your body resurrected. You say, oh, but some people died 800 years ago. There'll be nothing left. And God recreates the body with the exception of a few things unable to sin, unable to get sick, die, or even cry, okay? Like a hand in a glove, if you will. The hand is the soul and the spirit, the real you. If you're a computer nerd like me, the software. The hardware is the body. The, your soul and spirit will go back into your body, never to be sick again or die again, okay? Can you prove that with the Bible? Oh, I'll make up a verse if I have to. No, I'm just kidding. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians. So from Romans, if that's where you are, take a right and go to 1 Thessalonians. It's that section of the New Testament where all the books start with T. There's Titus, two books about Timothy, to Timothy, I should say. Um, I want 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you can't find it, that's okay, but you won't get an A in the class today. Okay. Verse 15, he talks about um, um, when Christ comes back. There's only two categories of Christians. When Christ comes back at that moment, whenever it is, the two categories are the Christians that have already died and the ones that happen to still be alive and get to see, oh my gosh, look, here he comes. Got the picture? Alive or dead? Verse 15, according to the Lord's, I'm in 1 Thessalonians 4, according to the Lord's own word, meaning Paul saying, this is what Jesus said. We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not go before or precede those who have fallen asleep. Tell us more, Paul, verse 16, for the Lord himself, that's important, body, right? Resurrected body. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, that's the shout, with the voice of the archangel, 
with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Got the picture? We're alive. Let's say we see it happening. We don't go first. All the cemeteries get really busy all of a sudden, right? Can you imagine being there at the time and boom, boom, they're popping up all over. Uh, sounds a little weird, but it's not. It's not a horror movie. It's not Night of the Living Dead. It's night of the day of the eternal alive, right? Um, anyway, after that, verse 17, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with the Lord. Harpazo in Greek, rap, rapturo in Latin. That's where we get rapture. We'll be ca caught up together with them. We go floating up and changed in an instant. Okay. Um, let's see. Do we want to go to 1 Corinthians? No, I'll just read it to you. 1552. How will this happen? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Um, I lost my place. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed in an instant. Pretty amazing. Um, Jesus says four times in the gospel of John chapter six, I will raise him up on the last day. I will raise everyone who believes up. That's you. That's me. Pretty amazing. Okay, go back to John. You remember John. Um, are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, that was better than the first one. Uh, okay, so verse, so verse 8, he saw and believed. Verse 9, parenthetic, parenthetically, John adds, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Jesus' mission is threefold. Die for the sins of the world in the place of all sinners, rise from the dead, and ascend to heaven. Now he's done two out of three. Hasn't appeared to anybody yet, but he's done two out of three. But he's got to rise from the dead so that he can ascend to heaven uh, and be with the Father. At that point, the Holy Spirit comes, which is far better. Okay, verse 10. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying, uh, NIV has. Literally, it reads, uh, some translations have to their own homes, okay? That's really not a good translation. Literally, it reads, they went back to their own. You go, what does that mean? Listen, the disciples don't live in Jerusalem, okay? This is Jerusalem. They are pilgrims coming in for Passover. Passover was yesterday and the day before, Friday, Saturday. They are staying with friends, staying at a hotel, an inn, probably staying with friends or camping on the Mount of Olives. That's possible. They go back to their own, their families, their friends. They don't go all the way home back to Galilee. I just wanted to clarify that. Okay. So now the story, you're on the edge of your seat, hopefully, because not there. It's clearly something supernatural happened. How did the stone get rolled away? Um, and where's Jesus? Verse 11, wouldn't you know it, guess who it is? It's Mary again. By the way, there are all kinds of resurrection appearances. John picks certain ones, okay? Because he appears to Mary Magdalene in a moment. He appears to, appears to the other women next, Matthew 28. Then to Peter Solo. Then on Easter afternoon, two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Then at night, we'll see that one. 11, uh, 10 disciples, everybody except Thomas, Judas is dead, right? Then the following Sunday, 
to the 11 disciples, including Thomas. Remember all that? We'll see that one too in John. And then the following 32 days, seven disciples by the sea. We'll see that one. 500 people, including the 11 at a mountain in Galilee. That's uh, Matthew and 1 Corinthians. To his half-brother, James, a separate resurrection appearance, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Then two more disciples in Jerusalem, and then back to the Mount of Olives, where he appears one last time and ascends to heaven. Okay. So, verse 11. Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over, remember the low entrance, to look into the tomb. She glanced in before, right? Almost didn't want to look and knew body's not there anymore. What are the evidences for the resurrection? Briefly, the stones rolled away. It was sealed. It was guarded. Didn't matter. The tomb's empty. The grave clothes are lying wound still just the way they were and hollow. Angels are about to testify. Um, he appears in person. By the way, he appears only to believers. You ever notice that? He doesn't go to the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and go, see, told you, right? You're going to get it now. Only to believers, he appears. Um, he appears to, um, let's see, uh, the, that whole list of appearances, right? Um, Mary, keep in mind, is not an apostle. She's an insignificant person, not to Jesus. She's there, right? She shows up. Show up to church or Bible study. There's always a blessing. Amen. Now, Mary stood outside the tomb crying. The word for crying is uncontrollable sobbing, eyes full of tears. As she wept, she bent over and looked into the tomb, verse 12. And she saw two angels. This is what I've been dying to get to. I just want to warn you. I'm like a little kid. You have to excuse me. And saw two angels in white inside the tomb. You got the picture? Seated where Jesus's body had been. How were they arranged, John? One at the head and the other at the foot. Okay, you got the picture? Now, this is where it gets interesting. Before we get to the rest of the scripture, how many have heard of the Ark of the Covenant? Let's not confuse our arcs. This is not Noah's Ark, which was a boat, okay? Some people go, the Ark of the Covenant, you mean like Noah? That was a boat, a huge boat. The Ark of the Covenant was a, a box that God told the Jews to build, okay? He gave them precise measurements in cubits. A cubit is the length from a man's elbow to the tip of his middle finger, roughly, because it depends on the size of the man, roughly 18 inches, okay? So God tells them, I want you to build this box, okay? Two and a half cubits long. Two and a half cubits is 18 and 18 is 36, and half of a cubit is nine, 47 inches long. So let's say four feet across. It's not huge like a casket. They would carry this around. Okay. Um, one and a half cubits wide, one and a half cubits tall. 27 inches, 27 inches, 47 inches. Got the picture? Acacia wood, very carefully made. I want rings on both sides to put poles through so they can carry it, okay? Cover the whole thing in gold, 
And now I want you to turn to, uh-oh, it's not there. Exodus, it's somewhere. Um, hmm, ah, there it is, Exodus 25. Uh, I want you to see this. Go all the way back to the Old Testament. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, second book. Exodus after Genesis, chapter 25. I want you to see this. I think it's very cool. Exodus 25 verse 17. So besides the whole box, which starts, uh, look in verse 10, have them make a chest of acacia wood. There's the measurements, poles. Okay. Verse 17, make an atonement cover. Okay. It's a hollow box. Now make a cover for it. Those of you that are into construction, like Les can appreciate this, right, brother? Um, make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long, and a cubit and a half wide. It's going to fit perfectly over the top. Look at verse 18. Make two cherubim. Those are an elite order of angels. Make them out of gold. Okay. Make two cherubims out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. One at this end, one at that end. You got the picture? Okay. What else can you tell us, Moses? He's writing this. Make the cherub of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim, these two angels, are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Okay, go back to John. That's enough for now. So I want you to get the picture. I even brought a picture, well, a drawing, okay? And I'll hold it up to the camera in a second. So we've got this arc of wood, four feet, 27 inches, 27 inches, gold. On each end are angels facing each other. You got the picture? Wings up, looking over the middle of the top of the box. You say, what's so special about the top of the box? Top of the box. The top of the box is the mercy seat where God is supposed to sit. The problem is humans are sinful, so God can't sit there until there's a payment for sin. So every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would sacrifice lambs and would come in and sprinkle blood on that seat. The mercy seat is called the kaporeth, Hebrew. I'm probably not pronouncing it well. So kaporeth means the sacrifice that reconciles or the sacrifice that leads to peacemaking. So the priest would sprinkle on that seat there. The angels, their attention is toward where God would sit and where that blood would be. Do you understand? Um, okay, so on the Day of Atonement, once a year, that would be done. Now, the artist's representation, not an actual photograph because Polaroid hadn't been born yet, looks like this. Can, those of you that are here, can you see that? A box, I'm going to put it up to the camera nice and big there, and you can see that there's angels on each side facing inward. Got the picture? Is it exactly like this? As close as they can figure, okay? I looked up all kinds of drawings, and this is what kept coming up. I'll hold it up there like that. Okay, so what's your point, Joe? This is a big, long way to go for nothing. I believe that when Mary looks in, she sees what looks like a large life-size version of what I just showed you that's only four feet big and the angels are probably a foot tall. 
I think the angels are at one end and the other purposely to show that the real mercy seat where the blood's been sprinkled is where Jesus's body was laying, which by the way, that's the seat for God to sit in that makes him God. It also makes him the blood sacrifice. Do you follow? It's an unbelievably beautiful picture. Um, Jews would get it more than us Gentiles, but in any case, um, back to Mary Magdalene, I forgot to mention two very cool verses from the Old Testament. Mary may not have slept all night, or if she did, she got up at 4 a.m., turned her alarm off, and came over there. Proverbs 8, 17, God talking. I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. Isn't that cool? Mary Magdalene. Listen to Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. You've heard that one before, haven't you? Okay, I believe that God sets this whole incident up so that she will recognize it's just like the Ark of the Covenant, the two angels facing the mercy seat. Um, okay, verse 12, she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus's body had been, one at the head, other at the foot. And they speak to her, verse 13, they asked her, woman, why are you crying? In other words, the greatest thing in the history of mankind just happened. The greatest thing, the most joyous thing, those don't look like tears of joy. Woman, which is a respectful address, it's not woman, it's not like that. Why are you crying? Do they know? Of course they know. They know why she's crying. They're sort of saying, crying, inappropriate emotion for what just occurred a little while ago here. Woman, why are you crying? She answers, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've put him. Right? That's why she's crying. Still doesn't get, oh, a resurrection, angels. She doesn't even, by the way, this is the only time in the Bible where a human being encounters an angel and isn't freaked out with fear right? Most people in the Bible, you read, and an angel appeared, they fall on their faces like, like dead men. They're just freaked out, right? John attempts to worship an angel in the book of Revelation, and the angel says, no, 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 get up. Don't do that. Worship God. He's so freaked out by their appearance. Mary is so full of um, weeping and grieving emotion. She didn't even care that angels are talking to her. They took my Lord. Where did they take him? That's what I want to know. That's why I'm crying. She says, um, oh, it's time for a two-minute break. Let's do that right now. We're going to take two minutes to stretch our aging bodies. I'm going to turn my screen off, but I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. There we are. Welcome back. Did you go to sleep? Wake up. Say, uh, those of you online, wave and show me that you're awake. Great. Um, and those of you here, are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Good one. They're still awake. Okay. Um. Okay, I got to get my mind. We got off on the millennium over there, didn't we? Um, somebody had a question. Okay, so she is outside the, the tomb. It's very early morning, could be misty and foggy, could be barely light out. She's got tears in her eyes. You ever been crying? You can't really see that well. She's in the lighter part of the world looking into a dark tomb. 
it's possible she doesn't know that they're angels, okay, looking through tears into a dark tomb. Um, and, but in any case, they ask her, why are you crying? They've taken the Lord away. I don't know where they've put him. At this, verse 14, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not realize it was Jesus. You say, wait, she knew Jesus well. How can she not know it's him? Okay. The text doesn't tell us. I'll tell you what the majority opinions say. Number one, she's looking through tears, not seeing clearly, um, and it's bright where he is, and she can't see him that well. Possible. Number two, it's possible that like the two disciples, if you read that story in Luke 24, two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they're leaving Jerusalem going, what a bummer. We thought he was the Messiah. It just didn't work out. Jesus walks with them, and they don't know it's him. You remember? And he gives them a, an unbelievable Old Testament Bible lesson, starting with Moses and the prophets all the way through, explaining the Messiah thing. They say, oh, you're leaving at night. Why don't you stay with us and have dinner with us? He stays, he breaks the bread, and they see his holes in his hands and realize, oh my gosh, it's him, and he disappears. Do you remember that? And then they go back to Jerusalem. That passage says their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Somehow, supernaturally, God wouldn't let them recognize him. Is that what's happening with Mary? I don't know. Or is it the tears and the, dar and the darkness and the mist? And I don't know. Um, there is one other theory. It's a little bizarre, but it's possible. Um, let's see. Go back to Isaiah. Middle of the Bible, Psalms. If you're at Psalms, take a right. Proverbs, then go to Isaiah. Um, Isaiah 53, we spent a lot of time there two weeks ago and a little bit last week. Do you remember that? It's the whole prediction of the Messiah uh, suffering and being be basically beaten up for us. Um, but it starts in 52:14. Actually, 13. See, my servant will, I mean, Isaiah 52, 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. What's your point, Joe? I think they beat him. You ever heard this saying? To a pulp. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. Is it possible he looks so different she can't recognize him? Okay, now this is where it gets a little weird. You got to bear with me. Go back to Isaiah 50, 5 0. Okay. Woven into Isaiah 50 is verse 6, which sure sounds like Jesus. Isaiah 50, verse 6. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who, what? Pulled out my beard. Have you ever known anybody for years and years and years and years who had a beard, and then they shave it, and you go, who are you? Um. I have. It's, I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. It sounds like Jesus. There are scholars that think in the course of the beating and the spitting and the, and the whipping that they pulled his beard out. Unbelievably painful. 
he might look very, very different, or she might be prevented from recognizing him. We just don't know. But notice that at verse 14, she turns around and she sees Jesus standing there. What a scene. Mary shows up early and gets the blessing of a lifetime. She looks in the tomb and sees the two angels arranged the way the Ark of the Covenant is. And they speak to her. She turns around and there's Jesus. Pretty amazing. Verse 15. So Jesus asks her the same question and another one. Verse 15, he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Now, I don't know if Mary was six foot four, 240 pounds and could easily carry a grown, very strong carpenter dude, but I doubt it, right? She's just so bold. Where is he? I'll pick the body up myself. Okay. There's a lot going on in this verse. We're not done. Why are you crying? You know me, I, whenever there's a question in the Bible, I like to answer it. Why is she crying? Because he's dead. All her hope, the guy that saved her life from seven demons, he's gone. But look at the second question, which really explains what he wants to get at. Who is it you're looking for? Don't dismiss that question too quickly because you're going to say, well, the, it's obvious the answer is Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, her Lord, her best friend, her savior. Listen, you know what he's asking her? Who are you looking for? Which Jesus are you looking for? Are you looking for the dead human being, the beaten up guy? Or are you looking for the Messiah that's truly God and can rise from the dead? Who are you looking for? Did you create in your mind what the Messiah ought to be like? And now I'm upsetting the apple cart. Who are you looking for? The powerless Messiah, the dead Messiah, the bloody Messiah, the human Messiah. She doesn't even answer. She just says, where have they laid him? I'll go pick him up and carry him. It's, it's very cute. It's almost humorous, right? So then comes verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. One word, Mariam in Aramaic, Maria, Latin, Mary, English. If you remember when your parents were alive, maybe they're still alive, or your spouse, if, if they're deceased, or your best friend had a way of saying your name where you, would, you wouldn't have to turn around and go, was that? You just know, right? My mother, when, she, when we did something wrong, my mother would recite my brother and my full names, even the middle name. Joseph, I knew like, oh, you're in trouble now. What did I do? She just, he just says, Mary. And he has a way of saying it that audible wise, forget the eyes with the tears and the mist and the darkness of the tomb and the bright night uh, because the sun's rising. Mary. I think he says it with such love. He doesn't tell her who he is. He tells her who she is. He just says her name. It's so tender. It's so beautiful. There's no rebuke for why weren't you expecting a resurrection? I have predicted it again and again and again. Weren't you listening? He just says, Mary, 
I don't think he shouts it. I think he says it quietly. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, means rabbi, right? That's what she would call him. So what the text doesn't say is what happened next, which is she fell at his feet and wrapped her arms or hands around his ankles and would not let him go. You know that from the next verse, but I want to stay on verse 16 for a second. Keep your finger here and go to John chapter 10. So go backwards to John. We're in John 20. Go to John chapter 10. I want to show you a cool thing. In a way, he sort of predicts this little meeting. John chapter 10, he tells his followers that he is the good shepherd. See it in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for a sheep. Check. He already did that. But look in the same chapter at verse three. The watchman opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. I believe as Lazarus did, okay? Lazarus, like Jesus, human being. If you know people in the medical profession, they'll tell you, how do you tell whether that one's dead and that one's alive? And the standard answer is heartbeat brainwaves. No heartbeat, no brainwaves, gone, right? Now they can do the thing with the shock, you know, and there's all kinds of things they can do, uh, CPR to try to bring the person back, get their heart going again, keep them alive. But I'm just saying dead, no brainwaves, no heartbeat. Jesus's body was dead. Lazarus, totally dead. And yet Jesus says, roll away the stone. They roll away the stone for Lazarus. Chapter 11, we read a little bit of it. You remember? And he does a weird thing. He calls out to a dead man. Do you remember? Lazarus, come forth. You got to do the British accent, right? Come forth. He's speaking to a dead man. That makes no sense. He can't hear you. But he did because he was one of his sheep. My sheep hear. They listen to my voice. They, he calls his own sheep by name. Chuck Missler and others have said they believe if we all die and then years later, Jesus comes back from the grave, you're going to hear Susan, Les, Jeff, Doreen, Debbie, Maria, Joe, right? From the grave. It's an astounding thing. Okay, let's keep moving along, shall we? Um, okay, verse 16 we read, did we not? She cries out. Verse 17, between 16 and 17, what happened is what I told you. She grabs him, won't let him go, okay? But she's in a way answering the question he asked. Who are you looking for? The man, Jesus, you're holding, you got me back, skin and bones again. It's not who I am anymore. Every relationship you'll see and everybody he meets after he rises, every relationship is different. He's about to call the disciples a name he never called them before. He's about to call God a name, refer to him in a way he never has before. Jesus said, 
verse 17. If you have King James, the old version, it's unfortunate uh, because it's not a good translation. Old King James has touch me not. Don't touch me. As if somehow by being touched, he'd become unclean. You can't touch me now. It's not what the verse says. It's stop holding on to me. Stop clinging to me. Which is why I told you, I believe she fell at his feet and grabbed his ankles and thought, I'm never letting you go now. I thought I lost you, right? He, she has to understand the man Jesus is headed for heaven before two months are up. I'm out of here, but it's to your benefit. Then I send the Holy Spirit. I'll be inside of you. God will be with you everywhere from now on. You'll never lose me. Don't worry. So he says, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet, verse 17, ascended to the Father. I've still got stuff to do, okay? And what you're holding on to is not what it, you ought to be holding on to. Who are you seeking? He's the God of the universe. Can't hold on to him. Not that way. Not in the, in the flesh. I have not yet ascended to my Father. Go instead. From grief, she gets absolute joy. She screams, Rabboni, and grasps, grasps him. She also gets a mission. He tells her, go. Instead, to my brothers, he never, ever calls the disciples, the apostles, my brothers, ever, till now. Why? Because there's a new family relationship that has suddenly blossomed that was never there. It was about to happen. It never happened till now. Go tell my brothers. He's, got, he's telling her, I want you to be the messenger of the resurrection. Okay. Before we get into the brothers, I, I want to say this. In that culture, ladies, no offense, women were second-class citizens. If there was a dispute and a trial, women were not allowed to testify in a court of law, okay? Second-class citizens, not with Jesus. If, we're, if someone is making this story up, this is the dumbest move you could make to make a woman the first witness to the resurrection. You would never do that. Well, then why is it here? Because that's how it happened. Because Christianity elevates women higher than any other religion. He tells her, I want you to go and tell my brothers. That's an astounding thing. He calls the disciples my brothers. Let's just review, though. How have the brothers been doing? Well, they... Peter denied him, the leader of the brothers. The others all deserted him. John did show up at the cross, the only one that we know of. They didn't do very well, right? But he calls them his brothers because they now have a common father. How does he always refer to God? My father. How can we now refer to God? Father. Look in the Old Testament. You do not see the singular person calling God my father. We cry, Abba, father. Abba, by the way, does not mean father. It means daddy, papa. Very intimate, pa, kind of a term. Um, let's see, gosh. Well, why are they brothers now? He called them, by the way, friends in the gospel of John. 
servants or slaves. But God is now your father too. And you are all sons of God. That's what he's saying. And daughters of God for the ladies. Wait, we're sons of God in the same sense as Jesus? No. Ours is imputed. His is naturally so. He was always the son of God. We're grafted in. We're that verse that I just quoted about we cry, Abba, Father, because we've been adopted is what that verse says. Totally beautiful. Um, so now, why couldn't they be sons of God and his brothers before? Covered in sin, covered in shame, covered in guilt. Aren't they still? No, they believe. Okay, so think of the way God the Father looks at Jesus. He sees Jesus totally sinless, totally perfect. He now sees the disciples and you the same way. We are positionally righteous before him. We're wearing the robe of Christ's righteousness. No sin. It's all been paid for. Positionally righteous. Practically not. What do you mean? We still sin. You do. Some of you sin a lot. I do. <laughs> I'm not going to point anybody out, but I'll point this one out. I still sin. So practically, I'm not perfect yet. When we get the resurrected bodies in the twinkling of an eye, either out of the grave or if we're alive when Christ returns, you'll never be able to sin again. You'll never want to sin again. Then we'll be what we are positionally, practically as well. How many are totally confused? Perfect. Let's keep moving. Um, uh, we're conformed to the image of his son. Those he foreknew, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, Romans chapter 8. Uh, as many as are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now it's a whole different relationship. Go tell my brothers. He doesn't mean the four blood half-brothers that he has. They don't believe yet. They will but they don't now. He means my brothers, you know, Peter, James, all those cowards that ignored me and, um, and denied me and are hiding like a bunch of chickens. Go tell my brothers what happened. Go tell, go in my, go to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father, God, the father and your father to my God and your God. Now, the relationship is not just we are his servants. We are. We're also his children, his kids. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it, right? Doesn't need a fridge, but if he had one, he'd have a picture of you on it. I'm ascending. Go tell them. By the way, he doesn't tell us this, but in the gospel of Luke, Mary goes to the disciples knocks on the door. Who is it? They're all afraid up there. It's Mary Magdalene. They open the door. She comes in and tells them, and guess what they say? Yeah, right. No, really, I've seen the risen Lord. You, they don't believe it. Um, that's Luke 24. Um, but John tells us that she went, but not that they didn't believe. Mary Magdalene, verse 18, went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. John's being very kind because the truth is they all went, yeah, right. Um, let's see, I'm looking at notes now. Um, 
So Mark, by the way, in his gospel tells the same story and mentions that they were not only fearful, they were mourning, just bummed out up there. Boy, it just didn't happen. He's not the guy we gave our whole lives to this Jesus guy. Nobody's expecting a resurrection. Um, I'm not going to go into that now, maybe later. Um, yeah, okay, let's keep rolling, shall we? Um, verse 19, on the evening of that first day of the week, that's why Christians worship on the first day, the Lord's day, a new beginning, a new covenant. So this is the night, this is Sunday night, got the picture of the first day of the week, the day he rose, when the disciples were together, I'm in verse 19, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Why is the door locked? It's all shut up in there. They're afraid they could be coming for us. They killed our master. Jesus came and stood among them and said, why did you chickens desert me? What's wrong with you? I'm going to pick other guys. You people are just, is that what he says? Peace be with you. Shalom. To calm them down, right? And the gospel of Luke he says the same thing, and they're still thinking they're seeing a ghost, and they're all like this, and he says, do you have any fish? And they give him a piece of broiled fish, and he eats it to show him, look, it's me, my hands. Um, he's about to do that. Um, let's see. So he says, peace be with you. We could spend, and we won't, but we could spend all night on peace be with you um, right there. So um, when God finished the work of creation. He rested on the seventh day, the Sabbath, right? Six days of work, create the world and everything in it. Seventh day, rest. That was the Jewish model. You work six days. None of this five-day work, we, us lazy Americans, right? Six days you work, seventh day, you rest. Have you ever noticed our Sabbath rest is a person? Jesus Christ. Christianity is the opposite. When do we worship? Seventh day. No. After the week of work. No. The first day. The first thing in Christianity is you realize I can rest from all my trying to please God, from trying to be perfect. He was perfect in my place. From trying to sacrifice lambs and wash with ceremony, ceremonial washings and eat the proper foods that God has said in the Old Testament, all that's over. The first thing Christians do, day one, worship, rest. And then we just sit in recliners? No. The other six days, guess what? Day two, three, four, five, six, and seven, we work, right? We do what she did. Go tell others. It's beautiful, though, that we get to rest on the first day. Um, verse 19. So, uh, by the way, Thomas isn't there. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. You'll miss a blessing. That's Hebrews 10, 25. You'll miss a blessing. Thomas, for a whole week, missed out. He was fearful, lacked faith. The others saw Jesus. He wasn't hanging out with them. I don't, we don't know why. Um, and we'll get to him in a minute, though. Verse, so he says, peace be with you. Peace, remember, is the absence of war. Your sins are forgiven. No more war vertically. Peace inwardly, inner, inward tranquility. 
peace outwardly toward other human beings. Peace be with you. There's nothing to be afraid of. It's me. And so he says, peace be with you. Verse 20, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Um, I think it's Mark in verse 20 that includes his feet. John doesn't mention that here. His hands, Mark's where the nails were. By the way, they would be like railroad spikes. So they'd be huge nails. Okay. Whatever his resurrected body is, it's supernatural now, but it's still human. Well, which is it? It's both. How do you know? Because he can eat fish, but it's supernatural. He can walk through a rock tomb. He can resurrect right out of the clothes and leave them the way they were. He can come right through a locked door and go, here I am. If they had a ring doorbell, they would have seen him coming, right? Okay, never mind. I got to move on. But he's still human. Question. Why aren't the wounds all healed up? He still got them. Still got them. He shows them. He shows um, Thomas. Do you remember? We'll get to that later in this chapter if the teacher shuts up and moves on quickly. But uh, Shalom Alekum, he says. Peace be with you. He's imparting peace, not just wishing it on them. So he's showing them, I'm not a ghost. It's the same me. Look, holes in the hands, hole, big hole in the side. Remember the spear? Hole in the, holes in the feet. You with me? Interestingly, in that parallel passage in Luke 24, he says a weird thing. He says, handle me and see. A spirit, a ghost, a phantom, doesn't have flesh and, wait for it, bones, as you see I have. So he's got flesh and bones, and yet he's supernatural. He can pass through walls. What gets left out there? Did you notice it? Handle me and see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and blood. Why? Because human beings, Old Testament, God says the life is in the blood. His life, he all his blood was poured out for you, for me. He says flesh and bones, because the life in him is spiritual life. It's inherent. He'll live forever, and so will you in that body. Okay, so in heaven, are those scars still going to be there? When you see Jesus, some of you are nodding yes. Absolutely. There's the story of a little uh, child um, who was two years old, let's say. Real, too, too young to remember the story. And there was a fire in the home. And the mother was sleeping downstairs and, and the child was upstairs. And the fire was engulfing the whole house. And the mother, being a loving mother, how many of you know the story? Ran upstairs through the flames, getting burned, to grab her child, wrap him, and carry him out. She saved her child's life. But in the course of doing it, she was all burned up, and her face was disfigured. The child grew up with the mother, three, four, five, six years old, and just, you know, you get used to that's how mom looks. One day, this child saw a photo of her beautiful mother before the fire and said, who is this? And the mother said, that's me. Well, why do you look different now? 
Remember I told you, honey, about the fire? And so those scars, you mean to tell me that that's a reminder that you saved my life? Yes. And I'm sorry, honey, I don't look as pretty here, uh, here as I do here in this photo. And the child said, oh, I think you're prettier now because it means more. The most beautiful thing in heaven will not be the streets of gold, seeing loved ones. It'll be seeing your Lord and yes, with the scars, which will be the same kind of beauty. You say, well, is that scriptural? Yes, it is. In the book of Revelation, 28 times Jesus is referred to as a lamb. Specifically, um, let's see, Revelation 5, 6. I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. The word for slain in Greek is slaughtered, butchered. You won't think that's gross. You'll think those are the most beautiful scars I've ever seen. Those scars are the reason I'm here. Take those scars away, I'd be in hell. Um, he, a lamb as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. Wait, that's where God should be. Exactly. Um, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Revelation 5.12. The book of life is called the book of the lamb who was slain. The only man-made thing in heaven will be the holes in his hands and his side and his feet. And you know what? Like, unlike Thomas, you won't say, I'm not going to believe until I put my finger in the, you'll just go, wow, Lord, you'll fall at his feet like Mary did, right? Beautiful. Um, visible scars. He's still got them. He wears them like a crown, right? Because they are, that's what saved you. Okay. So he gave Mary a mission. Go tell the boys my brothers. Peace be with you. He shows them his hands and his side. The rest of verse 20, the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. They were fearful. Not now. They were mourning and their mourning was turned to joy. Still got a few minutes. Again, Jesus said, verse 21, peace be with you. It's all good. Don't worry. But there's a mission. What is it, Lord? Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. Apostle means sent one. So he says, remember how I told you the Father sent me? Now I'm sending you. Go. It's a form of Matthew 28, which is the great commission, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lo, I'm with you always all until the end of the age. Uh, he says that at a different time, but it's the same heart of what he's saying. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. No Christian communes, no, you know, us three, us four and no more kind of thing. We're supposed to go out into the unsaved world behind enemy lines and bring people to Christ by our words, by our example, by our love, but can't do it on our own. You can't do it. 
got to be something else. And here it comes. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 22 is controversial. First of all, breathed on them recalls when God made Adam. Do you remember? He made Adam out of the dust of the earth. So if you could watch that DVD, and I intend to watch it when I get to heaven, and you can check it out of the library in heaven. When you watch the creation, you'll see God make Adam, and it's a dead body. It's what it says. And God breathes into the nostrils of Adam the breath of life. Breath, the word for breath, the word for wind, and the word for spirit are the same. Pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A. It's where we get pneumonia, remember? Pneumatic, you've heard those words before? So the question is, and you're going to think the answer is yes, and it's not. Verse 22, and with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Do the disciples get the Holy Spirit right now? No. Well, that's not what he said. Listen, they have to be empowered to do the witnessing he's sending them to do, okay? But he has told them before that they will receive the Holy Spirit when he uh, rises uh, and when he, after he ascends, he tells them it's to your benefit that I go away. If I don't go away, the Holy Spirit won't come. He's got to go away. Proof number one, this is not the getting of the Holy Spirit. This is a, a sort of a guarantee you're about to receive the Holy Spirit. By the way, in Greek, it doesn't say receive the Holy Spirit. It says literally receive Holy Spirit. You say, oh, now you're splitting hairs. Not really. He's referred to as the Holy Spirit. A lot of scholars think what's happening here is this is when they're born again. They believe. He says, receive Holy Spirit. Your own spirit is now holy. When he ascends to heaven, he tells them in Acts chapter 1, stay in Jerusalem. Not many days from now, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses, A, B, C, D. I don't think they get the Holy Spirit here. I could barely find one, maybe, commentary that said they got it here. A week later, he shows up again, and they're still fearful. They're not preaching the gospel. When they go fishing in this gospel, they don't recognize him. Another proof, they don't have the Holy Spirit yet. When they get it, Acts chapter 2, there's an explosion that occurs. Do you remember? The wind that comes through, they're speaking in different languages and preaching the gospel boldly. Peter preaches a gospel, a message of the first sermon in a sense, and thousands get saved. Totally different. I don't think they have it here. I think this is a guarantee that they're going to get it. I think they're saved here and born again here. We're out of time. The teacher talked too much, and we didn't get very far. Um, but we will pick it up next time, God willing. If you have a, a question or a prayer request, email me, um, and uh, we'll pick it up next time. Let's pray, and then we'll uh, get out of here, shall we? Still a lot more to go in the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your son loved us enough to die in our place and take our punishment and then rise. And we see that it's his resurrection, which is glorious, but it's ours as well. Same thing. Death has absolutely no sting. It's just a graduation to a better world in spirit and in soul until your son comes back to the earth. And then 
the bodies rise and are united like a hand in a glove with the spirit and the soul. Just like John did, God, may we see this stuff in our spiritual eyes and believe like he did and let it take away our doubt, let it take away our fear, let it take away our reluctance to witness. May we be bold for you, God, and preach your word to everybody around us. And may that same love that died for us motivate us to love you more and to love others. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. We'll see that more next week. Thank you for this time in your word, God. May these words change the way we live and the way we think, God. We love you. Thank you that death has no sting. He is risen indeed. It's not even Easter, and here we are saying that. And so will we be one day. Till then, use us for your glory. We give thanks to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know. Those of you who are here, those of you on Zoom, thank you for being here. God bless you. See you next time. I'm going to turn my screen off here.